Please turn to the book of Jeremiah. We will be studying chapter 27. Chapter 27 in the book of Jeremiah. Let's ask the Lord to bless chapter 27 as we hear it read, as we hear it preached. Father, thank you for this prophet. We thank you, O God, that we see who we truly are without you. We're thankful, O God, that you have provided a way for us to know you through your Son, Christ. And we're thankful for all the Jeremiah prophesy that teaches us about your Son. Father, we praise you for what we heard this morning. You are sovereign. We don't understand everything in Scripture, and it's okay. But we know that you're good. We're thankful, Father, that as men and women were asked to do spectacular things in faith, they did those things, though they were difficult. And Father, once again tonight, we're asked to do some difficult things in Scripture. Submit to things that we sometimes don't want to submit to, but this is our calling. So Father, help us to see this. Help us to see your Son, Christ. We pray that the reading, and especially the preaching of the Word, would speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus the Lord said to me, Make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sadon by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, This is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power, my outstretched arm, have made the earth, the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beast of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. But if any nation or king will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put his neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers who say to you, You shall not serve the king of Babylon. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you, with the result that you will be removed far from the land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke in like manner. Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you and your people die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence, as the Lord has spoken concerning any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. I have not sent them, declares the Lord, 
that they are prophesying falsely in my name with the result that I will drive you out and you will perish, you and the prophets who are prophesying to you. Then I spoke to the priests and to all this people saying, Thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who are prophesying to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a desolation? They are prophets, and if this word of the Lord is with them, then let them intercede with the Lord of hosts, that the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem may not go to Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, the sea, the stands, and the rest of the vessels that are left in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take away, when he took into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem, they shall be carried away to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. And thus ends the reading of the very word of God. October 10th, 1988, in Strasbourg, France, the European Economic Union was meeting. They were meeting and they were going to decide if they shall bring Austria, Finland, and Sweden into the European Economic Union. In Belgium and France and Germany, Italy, Luxembourg, Netherlands, UK, Republic of Ireland, Greece, Denmark, Spain, Portugal. They all sent their delegates, their representatives, to this great meeting. It was a solemn meeting. They wanted to bring unity. And the European Economic Union thought, how can we bring unity to this land? How can we bring peace and prosperity and unity to this meeting, this solemn meeting to bring these other nations in? And they thought, we'll have Pope John Paul II speak on behalf of the European Union to talk about unity. After one sentence came out of his mouth, there was this man named Ian Paisley. If you know anything about Ian Paisley, he's a fireball preacher from Northern Ireland. And in 1988, he stood up with this big poster board in the middle of this solemn meeting and started yelling, The Pope is the Antichrist! The Pope is the Antichrist! And someone took his paper and they slung it on the ground and he pulled out another piece of paper in his pocket and started yelling again, The Pope is the Antichrist! They punched him in the face, they took him out, and they kicked him out of the parliamentary meeting. He totally wrecked the meeting. They interviewed him later, and he says, The Protestants have been saying this for years. Why are you surprised that I actually said this? This man doesn't bring unity. Well, the reason I bring that up is because Jeremiah does a lot what Ian Paisley did, or you can say Ian Paisley did what Jeremiah did. There was this meeting among all the nations, the king of Moab and Tyre, and, so, and they're all meeting with Zedekiah, the king, and they're thinking, what can we do to break the bondage, the yoke of bondage that Babylon has on us? I mean, Babylon is the big king in the land. Nebuchadnezzar is actually almost a thousand miles away fighting Syria there in Iraq. He's way far away. Why don't we come together and declare independence 
from Babylonian rule. And as they're having this meeting, Jeremiah is called by God to bust the meeting up. And he does it in a fashion that is just quite Jeremiah-like. You know, he likes his illustrations. He puts a yoke on his neck, as the Lord told him, and he busts into this meeting, and he starts yelling at the people, do not, do not break away from Babylon. Yoke yourself to that wicked ruler, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you're taking notes, we're going to see four things here. The first thing we're going to see is that, that God is sovereign over evil. Some of these are big pills to swallow. But we're going to see God's sovereignty over evil. The second thing we're going to see is God's difficult requirements. He asks people to do difficult things sometimes. The third thing we'll see is God's true voice. They're going to have to decipher between the, the voices of the, the false prophets and the enemy and the voices of God. And the fourth thing we'll see is God's restoration. God loves to restore. God's sovereignty over evil, God's difficult requirements, God's true voice, and God's restoration. As we look at God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty over evil and over the nations, we spent quite a bit of time in chapter 26 and looking at God being sovereign over everything. And here we see this meeting of all the nations coming together, thinking about declaring their independence. And look at verse 1 with me. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. Now there's a footnote here, and I've got in my notes, don't take too much time because I will spend all day talking about this. I love footnotes. There's, there's a footnote that actually tells you it's Jehoiakim. Now, there's a little bit of debate. The reason your Bible says Zedekiah, or if you're reading a NASB, is probably more literal and actually says Jehoiakim, is because there's a debate on who was actually in the original autographs. We don't know. Some may call it a variant. Now, Calvin will tell you it's clearly talking about Jehoiakim. He got the prophecy about 30 years before he actually enacted the prophecy. Calvin's okay with that. I'm very comfortable that it was a scribal error. If you have questions about textual variants and scribal errors, Pastor David and I will take you to lunch, and we will talk about that all day. There's human elements. God has inspired people when the scripture was written and there was copies made from those autographs and you can trust them. What you read is the word of God. God has preserved it. It's a very interesting topic. Either way, I believe this is Zedekiah and the reign of Zedekiah. Remember, Zedekiah was personally placed on the throne by Babylon. We see this often. Whenever a king comes in and he takes over a nation, they become a, a vassal to the king, and they have to pay tribute, they have to pay taxes, he will remove the king and put the person in power who he likes. He'll put the person in power who will be, what? Loyal to him. We saw Egypt do it with Josiah's son, and now we saw Babylon doing it with Josiah's grandson, and he puts Zedekiah on the throne. And, and maybe you're wondering why we're so sure about what's taking place here. Well, if you go to the British Museum, you'll actually see the Babylonian Chronicles. Just like we have a book of Chronicles from the kings, you read the book of Chronicles, and I know sometimes it's like, okay, Chronicles. Yeah. You read the book of Chronicles, the Chronicler, I believe that's the last book that was actually written in the Old Testament. 
my opinion. Some people disagree, and it's okay. But I believe the Chronicler wrote that book to show you the history of the kings. This is the history of the kings of Israel, and there's a true king that's coming to rule and reign. Well, the Babylonians did the same thing. If you read cuneiform, you can actually read them, but they have the tablets there, and they translate that in 594, as Nebuchadnezzar is fighting the Syrian army out on the eastern front, that there was a little skirmish of nations that want to rebel. And Nebuchadnezzar had to go and squash the rebellion that has taken place in the time of Zedekiah. So we know that this is 594 B.C. So read with me. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus the Lord said to me, Make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Jeremiah was told to make this yoke. I know uh, Mr. Frankie may be the only one here that's actually plowed a field behind an actual animal with yokes. Well, a yoke was for an actual animal. They yoked them together. It was just a long piece of wood, and they put them on the necks of the animals, and they, and they took leather, and they strung them together, and that way they could plow the fields together. Jeremiah makes one, as the Lord told him to do, and he puts it on his neck, and there was this extra space here for whoever wanted to put their neck in. That was for them. It was a big sermon illustration as Jeremiah had in the past with the, with the bok bok as he broke the, the water vessel as he's done with the shroud. He likes these illustrations. So let's look at verse 3 here. Send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Amnon, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to King Zedekiah, king of Judah. This big meeting with all the delegates, Jeremiah is going to bust in and he's going to give them this word. Verse 4, give them this charge for their masters. Make sure your kings know this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Your opinion doesn't matter in the throne of God. This is what Jeremiah is telling them. Now I give you all these lands into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who is my servant, which we dealt with before, and I have given him also the beast of the fields to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. You mean to tell me God is telling them all the kings that he's given the land to Nebuchadnezzar? But isn't Nebuchadnezzar a wicked and evil tyrant? At this time he was. You know the stories. He, he took men, young men, teenagers from Israel and said, if you don't worship this idol when the music's played, you're going to get thrown into a furnace. We see, we see that in Daniel. He throws Daniel into a lion's den. He takes Zedekiah and burns his eyes out and plays with him like a toy. This is not a man who's a good person. He's evil. Some of you have 
looked evil in the face. And here comes God saying what? I put evil, this man that is evil, in charge. He's got a secret counsel and a plan. And as I tell my nephew often, did God invite you to his secret counsel? No. Did he ask your opinion? No. Does he ever invite us to his secret counsel and say, you know what, what do you think? He doesn't. He doesn't ask us. And there's often things that we don't understand, as Pastor David shared this morning. We don't understand everything. But we know this, that he's got a plan. He's good, and that he's completely sovereign and in control, including of evil dictators and tyrants. This is why we must be careful to understand that Jesus Christ is our king. I said don't share the story, but I'm going to share it anyway. This past weekend, Danielle and I was at her grandpa's church. She was the deacon there for over 50 years. It's this country church in the middle of nowhere. You go to church, and it's just you picture a country church that you have to drive a long time to get to. That, that's the country church. We go to the country church, and it's Memorial Day. And they said, we want to sing some patriotic songs. I sat there, and a lady said, let's sing the Star Spangled Banner. It's in their actual hymnal. And everybody stood up to sing the Star Spangled Banner. I, I, I couldn't do it. I didn't have it in me. I just sat there, and Danielle said, you're not standing up, are you? I said, no, I can't do it. Jesus is my king. I, I live in this great nation. I love I think this this country is the best country out of all the countries you can choose. This is the best one. But in the day, my allegiance is to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ first. Nations will rise and nations will fall. God will raise up evil dictators and they will be used. As Luther would say, they're God's lackey to do what he wants. He has a secret will and he doesn't invite us to it. And God has chosen that Nebuchadnezzar, as wicked as he is, that he will be in charge of all the lands. And he did not ask the opinion of anyone. Which brings us to the second point of the sermon as we look at this God's difficult requirements. I'm going to quote a philosopher that all of you have probably heard of. It's very famous. Did a lot in the world. People following him around. It's amazing all the things that he did in his lifespan. But he says, I'm not a smart man. But I know what love is. Uh, we've all seen Forrest Gump, and you see, as he, you've seen a lot of memes. I'm not a smart man, but I felt as I was reading this, I'm not a smart man, but it seems that God is constantly asking his people to do things they don't want to do. Or is that something that I'm just reading into the text? Then Jonathan Mingledorf comes up and he talks about. Crossing the Red Sea. Could you imagine that? I don't know. I mean, I guess it beats fighting the, the Egyptians. But it seems as you read through Hebrews, God is asking people to do things that are difficult. God is asking you to do things that are difficult. He asks me to do things that are difficult. And oftentimes, he tells us, you're going to have to do something you don't want to do. You're going to have to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, and to the Babylonian Empire. And this is what's interesting. 
He gives them one way to survive. One way. One way. Look at verse 8. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put his neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it all by hand, or by its hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers who say to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. It is a lie that they are prophesying to you with the result that you will be removed far from the land and I will drive you out and you will perish. But any nation that chooses what? To bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, put your neck in the yoke that Jeremiah is walking around with and serve him, I will leave on his own land to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. If you serve Babylon, you'll get to stay in your land if you don't serve Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to come and he's going to destroy everything you have. One way. God often does this, doesn't he? He gives you one way out. We see that in Christ, don't we? You get one way. God did not have to give them any way. These are wicked nations. God could have just said, I'm going to judge all of you. You're not going to get any way. If he said that to us today, no way salvation, he would still be just, for we deserve to perish. But he doesn't, because he's a good God. He gives you one way. Could he have made two? Possibly, he made one. And that's through Jesus Christ. You have no other way. You either submit to Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. You embrace him as Lord and Savior of your life. That is all you get. You get one way. They were told you have one way, and that is a hard thing to do. You must submit yourself to the king of Babylon. I thought about submission and how difficult it is sometimes, and it made me think of when I was growing up. We were growing up, and oftentimes our dad would say, do you want a Happy Meal? I loved Happy Meals back then. I said, I want a happy meal. He goes, great. We're going to get home and your meal is going to be real happy. <laughs> We're going to go right by McDonald's. And it used to upset me. By the fourth, third or fourth time, I quit saying I wanted McDonald's. But every now and then, he'd take us into McDonald's and we got that happy meal. And when I got that happy meal, oh, I get, well, what do you want me to do? I'll do anything you want me to do because I'm happy. I got my happy meal. Or what about when your parents take you to ice cream? Teenagers, kids, your parents take you to ice cream, right? This is great. I love mom and dad. I'll do whatever they want me to do. Video games? Yes. I can stay up to three? Yes. I love my parents. But let them tell you to eat broccoli. Let them tell you to clean your room. It's a little bit more difficult, isn't it? Why? It's easy to submit when you're getting your way. But see, that's the heart of submission. God asks you to do things that are difficult. Are you willing to submit when it's difficult? Even think about government. When it's your guy in office, you look past everything, don't you? Oh, yeah, I mean, he's made the debt go up higher. He's printing money everywhere, but he's my guy, and he's good, right? Let someone else get there, and then you're just, everything's negative, right? 
Both sides, do the same thing. We're to submit to the government. You think I want to pay my taxes? You know why I do it? Because I'm commanded to. And I may have a hundred IRS agents calling me. Either way, we pay our taxes because we're told to. Our employers, as employees, we, we have to submit. As wives, we have to submit. Yes, when, you're, when the honeydew list is completely done and they're doing everything you want to do, it's really easy, isn't it? It's difficult when what? You're not getting your way. Every person in here, from a, from a child, we read Ephesians, they got the house code, so all the way from the, from the children to adults to the wives to the husbands, all of us submit to someone. And it's really easy when we get our way. Not so much when we're not getting our way. See, God wants to change our hearts where it becomes a joy to do what He's called us to do. And oftentimes, He's going to ask you to do things that are difficult. And if I'm reading my scripture right, which I think I am, this is very difficult for the people of Judah and for the whole surrounding area, but yet this is what they're called to do. We've seen God's sovereignty over evil. We've seen God's difficult requirements. And now we're going to see God's voice. There's a lot of competing voices going on in this passage. And for some of you seminarians, I know some of you are going to like to say, how would you outline that? That's a very good practice, by the way. I think it's very good. How would you outline it? It helps you think of the text. You can actually outline this. God's voice, man's voice. You see competing voices in here. He's speaking to, first off, the entire world. Then he goes to Zedekiah and speaks to him directly. Then he goes to the priest and the people. And all of them have competing voices. How do you know which voice to listen to? Even today, what, 24-7? Social media, you can look at people's opinions, you can look at pundits' opinions, you can look at anything you want to look at. This all over the place, opinions, opinions, everywhere. How do you know what's the voice of the Lord? One of the most profound things that are in all of Scripture was the governor of the Roman Empire of Judea serving under Emperor Tiberius. When Jesus Christ is on his way to Calvary to die for our sins, he stands in front of Pontius Pilate and he says, everyone who is of truth listens to the truth. The son of the living God, the second person of the God, is standing before Pilate, and he's saying, everyone who listens to my voice is of the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? What is truth? What voice do you listen to? How do you know what the voice of God is? And one thing you'll see in this text, it seems like when the whole world is yelling, if they're not yelling at you, it may not be the right voice. <laughs> Look at verse 12. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, remember he's already spoken to the world, now he's speaking to Zedekiah. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke in the like manner or in like manner, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people will live. You mean I have to submit? I'm Zedekiah. I'm the king of Judah. I'm king of God's covenantal people. Yes, Zedekiah. You must submit. Verse 13. Why will you and your people die by the sword 
by famine and by pestilence, as the Lord has spoken concerning any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are saying to you, you shall serve the king of Babylon. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but they are prophesying falsely in my name with the result that I will drive you out and you will perish and the prophets who are prophesying to you. You must submit, Zedekiah. Though you are a king, though you're in a high place, you must submit. Once again, it doesn't matter if you're a kid or you're a king. You're going to have to submit to somebody. God is calling you to submit and do things when they are difficult to do. Sometimes the voice that you need to ignore the most is the one that's in your own head and in your own heart, the screaming, no one's going to tell me what to do. You ever have that come up? I think you do. I do. We're human. And sometimes it comes up, no one tells me what to do. Do you know who I am? That's the voice that you need to quiet. That's the voice that you need to squash. I know what some of you are saying. We're Presbyterians. I, I understand that. If you were here this morning, I have an interpretation in Romans 15 that's really unique. I understand that. And there's often times that we don't listen to authority when they tell us we can't worship or what we can't do. That's not what this sermon's about. I'm not apologizing for saying that some of us have to submit. I'm not apologizing. When Peter said we need to submit to the government, do you know Nero was in charge? He wasn't a good person. And yes, there are times when we don't, but that's not what the sermon's about. And I don't want to just walk away from what we see in the text. Submission is something God calls us to do, and sometimes it's difficult. We've seen God's sovereignty over evil. We've seen God's difficult requirements. We've seen his true voice, and now we're going to look at his restoration. If you know anything about God, he loves to restore. He loves to free. See, it's Satan that wants to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to bind you up. He wants to keep you enslaved to sin. Right? It's, as Thomas Brooks would say, it's like a fish looking at the worm on the hook. That looks amazing. And you eat it, next thing you know, you're hooked. And you can't get off that hook. Satan presents the bait, but he hides the hook. He wants you enslaved. God, on the other hand, wants you restored. And he's speaking to the prophets and the priests. And he's telling them, listen, if you will just be concerned about submitting to Nebuchadnezzar, it will work out for your good. But look at all this in verse 16. Then I spoke to the priest to all this people saying, Thus says the Lord, Do not listen to the words of your prophets who are prophesying to you. Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. Just so you understand, Nebuchadnezzar, when he destroyed the temple in 586, that wasn't the first time he came into Jerusalem. He came into Jerusalem starting right about 605. He's been coming for a while. He's been coming in to Jerusalem, taking people. He started in the north and went to the middle section there and he's made his way all the way down to Jerusalem and he's taken people back to Babylon. He came in and he took the finest things that were in the temple. Things that were made of gold, jewels, and he took them back to Babylon. 
what Jeremiah is saying is, those things are gone. You need to be concerned about what you have in there. Verse 17, do not listen to these people who are saying, they're going to come back. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should the city become a desolation? If they are prophets, and if the word of the Lord is with them, then let them intercede with the Lord of hosts, that the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem, may not go to Babylon. Let them prove to you that they're not going to go to Babylon. But those things are already gone. Now, this may be a good time. Some of you may be asking about the Ark of the Covenant right now. What's happening with that? I know David asks about this often. If you read in 2 Maccabees, you're like, whoa, whoa, I thought you said you loved the Word of God. I do, right? It's not, it's not canonical. But 500 years after this sermon was preached by Jeremiah, there was men, because God hadn't spoken for over 400 years, there was silence, right? So a lot of men were writing and speculating on things that took place. And one of the speculations was, what took place to the Ark of the Covenant? And a lot of people believe that Jeremiah took it, hid it somewhere in Jordan. He went underneath in the caves, and that's where it is right now. Even some Christians would say, well, Romans 11:26 is going to happen, and all that, you know, and, and when the Lord returns and all the Jews, there's maybe an influx of Jews, however you take that. The Ark of the Covenant is going to be seen and shown. I, I, that's not my opinion. I'm sorry. That sounds like a good story. I think what happened was, that the literal presence of God was no longer with the temple. We clearly see that in the second temple. And the Ark of the Covenant was taken by Nebuchadnezzar and melted. The rest of the stuff thrown away. Remember, those things weren't powerful in and of themselves. They were powerful because God was there. We see in Jeremiah, right? Ichabod, the Lord had left. The Lord's Spirit has left. What Jeremiah is saying is, Listen here, that stuff's gone. You need to worry about what's left in the temple. Verse 19, For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars. There were these elaborate pillars in the temple. Massive pillars that had jewels and had different overlays. As a matter of fact, in the Septuagint, the priests were told to go and baptizo these great big pillars. Wash them, right? He was told to wash these Great pillars. That's what the Septuagint uses baptism for. They're supposed to wash these great pillars. The sea was this really bronze basin that they had to wash their hands before they, they came in. It was a very expensive, a lot of bronze there, right? The sea, the stands, the rest of the vessels that are left in the city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take these away. He took away everything else, but he's left some things that were not as elaborate when he took into exile from Jerusalem the Babylonian Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. 21, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. The rest of the things that are in the temple will be carried away. But look at the hope. Then I will bring them back and restore them in this place. God says, I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to restore it. And you need to understand to the mind 
of a Jewish person, they were always thinking about, well, aren't we special because we have promises? This is our ascension into Jeremiah 31 and the New Covenant. You read chapters 27, 28, 29, 30, all the way to 31. The question is, is God going to still be faithful to the Jews? Is that not what Paul picked up on in Romans 11? Did he not ask, did God reject his people? That's the question. Has God rejected his people? What about the promises of the land? The Jews said, wait a minute, we're going to be exiled? What about the temple? Isn't this where God meets us? What about King David and the promises made to King David? What about all these promises of the land that we're supposed to have? What's going on with this? And you may be saying, well, what does it matter if God keeps his promises to the Jews? Well, if he doesn't keep his promises to the Jews, why should he keep his promises to you? It's very important. If there are no more Jews, then there will be no more Jesus who will come and die on the cross for our sins. This is very important. The restoration is very, very important. And you need to understand what, what's the background of this is that God restores after He disciplines. If this doesn't scream Jesus, I don't know what does. Jesus Christ knew no sin at all, but took our sin. And He was disciplined on the cross for us. He was punished on the cross. This is the reason you look at King David. God is sovereign over every evil thing King David did. And the question is, would God actually punish his anointed? Oh yeah, for sin. Jesus Christ knew no sin and, and he was disciplined. He didn't do any of it. We did that. But you know what? Restoration took place. You know three days later, the exaltation took place. He rose again from the dead. God often disciplines, but he restores. And there's hope for people in Judah. But they're going to have to submit because of their sin. They're going to have to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, this evil man, and do that thing which is going to be very, very difficult. As we close, I don't typically do this, but I want you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22. Shouldn't be too difficult to find. It's one of the first five books, the law. Deuteronomy 22. I was preaching through Matthew 11, and I read this old farmer saying this, and I, and I never got it out of my mind. I, I kind of mentioned it in the reading of the law, but I, I didn't do a good service to it. So I thought it would be good to look at Deuteronomy 22, verse 10. Look at this law. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Why? Because the ox is ten times more powerful than the donkey. And if they're the ox together, the ox is going to drag that donkey around and absolutely kill it. It will absolutely kill the donkey. And God said, do not plow with an ox and donkey together. And Jesus, in Matthew 11, says, hey, remember that Deuteronomy law code? It's about me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. Why? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm not going to drag you around like that ox will and kill you. When I asked Judah to yoke and Jeremiah's yoke and submit to, to the Babylonian king, yes, it was difficult. But I'm meek and lowly in heart. I'm not going to drag you around and kill you and destroy you. Some of you have difficult things that you must submit to. You have lives that you would have chosen totally differently. But God still says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you yoke yourself to me, you will find rest for your weary souls. Judah could have found rest if they would have submitted and understood that God was good and looked to the Redeemer. And God is calling you to look to Christ, to submit to His will. It may be difficult, it may be a big pill to swallow, but submit to His will, for He is good. He is meek, and He's not going to drag you around like an ox will and kill you. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of His word.